Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Real Rescue, powered by Vertical Helicast. I'd like to shout out to our sponsor for this in particular episode. That's Axness. Their mission, wireless intercom. Check them out today at axness.com. Now, coming up next in this asterisk episode of The Real Rescue, I'm bringing a little something in that I've been wanting to dive into for quite some time. It's actually something I've been working on in the background for actually quite a while. And it revolves really around PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder, and clinical stress management, that SISM. Now, I did have at one point Olaf Lavelle and George Cavallo. Those guys came on and we did an episode of the Asterix with those guys. Um, but now I want to take an opportunity to dive even deeper into this. So I asked this guy to come on and a, a shout out to Bobby O'Donnell. He's the one that got us connected. And this in particular guest coming up, he's a critical care flight paramedic and he's a graduate of clinical psychology, currently an intern. And he just dives into it. Like we get deep into the weeds of what to expect, things that you're looking for. This is amazing. This is a great episode. And I hope you listen to it all the way through. In addition to that, if anybody out there needs help, listen to this episode, pass it along. It is well worth it. The information is fantastic. So please welcome our next guest to talk about PTSD and SISM, Mr. James Boomhauer. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. I love it, dude. And this is great because I got another like New England guy. I don't know if I can call you a mass hole. I, I like that's me, but no, sure, Rhode why Island. not? Sure, no, no, if yeah, Rhode Island, Island, you can't do that. Yeah, we'll we'll stick with New England. Yeah. Okay, New England in Rhode Island, the smallest state in America. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mister James Boomhauer. He goes by Boomer. What's up, dude? Not too much, man. How are you? Thank you for having me, dude. I my pleasure. Absolutely, my pleasure. So. One of the cool things about this is you and I, we're going to tell a couple stories uh, that both of us have had just throughout our career, but our conversation is going to be a lot of PTSD and SISM. And I'm yeah. emphasizing that right off the get-go because I can already hear it. People are going to be like, oh God, really? But this is important. And if you listen to all the episodes, and not maybe not all of them, but a lot of the episodes that I record on this podcast there's so many people that talk about it. And there's so many people that have gone through some sort of struggle in their career because of a bad rescue, uh, a, a bad patient, a bad call, a bad incident, and it just doesn't sit well with them. And they don't know what to do. They don't know the signs to find. They, it, there's so much of an unknown. And this is why I've asked you to join me because you have some insider information on that. Yeah, man, absolutely. I like it. I like it. All right, but but first, but first, before we go that far, we got to get a little background about who Boomer is. Like, who is this guy? All right. So, if you don't mind, give me just a little rundown, everybody, and and just wh who are you? Where are you from? Little background, and then how you got into the medical field. 
Yeah, totally. So uh, as Jason said, my name is James Boomhauer. Feel free to call me Boomer. I have been in the medical field for 20 years now, uh, primarily all pre-hospital. I also, part of the reason why Jason and I picked the topic that we are speaking on today is I am nearing completion of my master's in clinical psychology, and I am currently a graduate clinical intern in the field of psychology at a private practice in Framingham, Massachusetts. And my specialty, and my degree specialty, is on psychology for military and emergency response personnel. Nice. I feel like I need a couch right now to lay on. I've <laughs> got one in the background. It's just got some <laughs> stuff on it. Yeah. Oh, boy. Right, you, you might be analyzing me by the end of this. This is not good. Not good. <laughs> you know what? I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Right on. Now, where, where are you from? So you're from the New England area, born and raised? Uh, so I'm born and raised in New York. Um, did my collegiate studies in Maine. I went to the University of New England in Bedford, Maine, and that really gave me the New England bug. Um, you know, I did what every, what every paramedic in the world does, right? So I went to an associate's program in New York to get my paramedic ticket. I practiced as a paramedic in New York for a while, wanted to finish my degree, finished my degree in Maine, saw college, knew a couple of people that went there, looked great, close to the water, like all the cool things, far away from home, kind of all the like mandatory undergraduate requirements, right? Um, moved my ticket over, right? Got reciprocity, started working with a couple local fire EMS agencies there and like really got the New England bug and really enjoyed, you know, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire, that whole set, right? I love Connecticut too. I don't want any of your followers to be mad, but like that, <laughs> that's my, my, my setup right there. Um, really, uh, as a paramedic, really wanted to continue to work to evolve my practice to like the peak of my licensing. Like if I want to stay a paramedic, how can I be a paramedic at the absolute pinnacle of that licensure? And I can do so at a program in Boston called Boston MedFlight. So started to work through all of the things I needed to uh, escalate from uh, 911 responder and interfacility responder to critical care transport specialist and have been with Boston MedFlight now for darn close to 10 years. Oh, wow, man. You've been flying. Yeah, yep. I'm, awesome. I'm coming, getting real close to getting gold wings, which is our uh, moniker. Oh, that's so so, cool. Yeah. Dude, Pretty excited. that's great. Pretty excited. Yeah. God, I, I love flying. I just, so you know, I, it's one of my favorites. Every time I take off, I get all excited. So <laughs> it's an amazing, it's an amazing opportunity to help people. That's for sure. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's an amazing platform to use to help people too. Like yeah. from rescue and, and hospital in a transfer from hospital to hospital. It's just it, the speed and the, the ability to move from one spot to another and to get people from one spot to another is incredible. Yeah, yeah man. Rush yeah, hour traffic. I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, saw, I worked, I worked last night in helicopter and oh, flying really? back from the hospital. I watched uh, New Year's Eve fireworks that we flew above around. I'm not trying to get my pilot in any trouble. Right. right? But like how cool <laughs> to watch a fireworks show from above it. Right. And like stuff like that just reminds you that, well, every agency's got their stuff and there's drama everywhere. And, you know, every like employer could be a little better or this or that. Um, the people that I work with, the paramedics and nurses that I work alongside, the pilots and EMTs that I work alongside and the job that we do is amazing. Top notch. Awesome. Man, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I was not looking at fireworks, just for the record. I'm glad you were. <laughs> very different. Very, very different where we are, yeah. That's so funny. But all right, so not, let me ask you this, because I, yeah. I love these kind of stories. So, And everybody that gets into the medical field or emergency management field, 
they have their first call that stands out to them, whether it's the very first one or that first one that just, you're like, what did I just get myself into? What was that for you? So uh, I'll give you a slightly longer version of that story. So uh, my mother was an EMT and a dispatcher and my father was a paramedic. So like I had like always wanted to do this. I was reading first aid books, you know, instead of like kids books. And when I was in high school, we had an opportunity to be an explorer. I was like, put me on the ambulance. Let's do this. I got my EMT ticket like on my 18th birthday. And I'm only making that up like a little bit. Was working a private EMS job in Schenectady, New York. The second like my card cleared, I was a volunteer at my town for almost almost 10, 12 years because I did it kind of throughout this ride time exploration period all the way up to being a paramedic supervisor and just loved it. Always wanted to do it. Always wanted to do the thing. Super excited to like be in uniform and be as cliche as it sounds now, like the first responder, right? Like I thought doctors and nurses were awesome, but like we're the people that show up at your house and we're the people that show up like when the smoke clears right? I know how cliche all this sounds. Please don't hang up. Like, hang with me for a minute. It was awesome to be the person that got to be the first pair of hands on someone, right? And really not only provide that that physical and medical support, but that emotional support as well, right? Like, you're in the sock, you've called 911, you're bleeding, you're sick, you're whatever, and like the sirens in the distance come, and you're like, cool, someone is coming, right? And I really wanted to be one of those someones. Um, Man, that's cool. when we talk about the first call, I, I automatically revert back to like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen. And what I like to, <laughs> how I like to answer that because you always get it right. You're, you're in a flight suit, you're at Cumbies, you're like, just trying to like get to work. Cumbies, wait a minute, Cumbies, that's a very new England thing. That would be Cumberland oh, sure Farms. Is. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got to throw that out there because we're down at Cumbies right next to Duncan. It's over there. <laughs> I'm just sorry, waiting sorry, for sorry. people on your podcast to be like, what about Dunk's guy? Why are you at Cumbies? <laughs> yeah, I'm at Cumbies because it's a dollar. That's why I'm at Cumbies. <laughs> I'm a flight paramedic. It's a dollar. That's all I got. Uh, and, you know, someone someone tells you on your onesie, and if you don't call your flight suit a onesie, you really should. It really helps, you know, take the air of, like, superiority out of the whole thing. Someone's like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And we all think of, like, these, like, military flashbacks, right, of the thousand-yard stare and the helicopter in the distance. And I always answer that as, here's how I helped someone the most, right? Because I don't actually want to tell this lady the worst thing I've ever seen because they won't sleep for two weeks, right? And then I have to relive it and it's gross and it's awful. So one of my favorite calls was one of the calls where I was able to help someone in their family the most. Uh, I was working with a uh, dual role flight paramedic flight nurse who is also a nurse practitioner. We were called to a landing zone very close to a local hotel. Uh, for a young boy that had drowned. Um, This child was in a hotel swimming pool with uh, other members of his family and an au pair that was watching after them. And he's in the shallow end, kind of bobbing, doing the thing. And as he gets further and further out, right, like he goes from touching his foot to touching his toe and then really can't catch himself up and just slides into the deep end. Uh, There were nurses on scene. There was apparently a nursing convention that was being hosted at this hotel they were at. So like someone immediately gets in, he gets bystander CPR, the nurses help the responding 911 team come in and they immediately call MedFlight because they know that this individual needs to be taken to like tertiary pediatric trauma center, right? Like this has to happen. This has to happen right now. And my colleague and I get there and this kid's in a bad way, right? He is posturing. He has his mental status is all out of whack. He's full of fluid. You can just hear it, right? And you quickly realize that his family's from out of the country. 
and that like everyone speaks English, right? We're, we're not talking about a language barrier, but like this husband and wife are trying to look after like kids that are still at the hotel and a kid that now needs to be medevaced. They have medical providers in their family. So they're trying to get a hold of those medical providers to get some sense of like what James and his partner are about to do. And I, one of the things I'll never forget about this case is this child's mother is in the ambulance and she is humming a nursery rhyme to her child as we're preparing to RSI, like as we're giving sedation and paralysis to give RSI. And when you want to talk about like sights, sounds and smells that you will never forget like a nursery rhyme in the background. I remember my my partner and I just kind of look at each other with that look of like, this will be burned in my memory right for the rest of my career. Um, the procedural things, it all goes great. It's a it's a phenomenal intubation. Um, I don't know how much, like how deep you want to get into the medicine, but the intubation- Hey, let it ride, man, let it ride. There's a lot of people here that listen from all different medical sides, so let it ride. Beautiful, beautiful. So for anybody who, who would be on the business end of a laryngoscope, it's a salad intubation. It's beautiful. We get a whole bunch of fluid out of his lungs, a whole bunch of fluid out of his stomach, uh, handles the procedure really well. He's in the PICU for less than two weeks and like getting a challenge coin at our hangar three weeks later. And really, really cool. Um, I, I am normally very against this. Um, but I'm very close with the family to this day. Um, my fiance and I went to the country that they're from and we were like, Hey, we're in town right when we got to that country to go on a little vacation. Uh, we are just, we're still tremendously close with the family. And it wasn't just a, Hey, you are aside my kid and like took care of someone who was drowning. Yeah. A lot of the talk was about, you know, you got my wife a cup of coffee at the hospital. Right. And you like, made sure that like everyone knew where all of these players were because these individuals were not from this country, right? This wasn't like, oh, I just got to run home quick. It's like, I have to move a million parts to make sure that, you know, my siblings are okay and all of these other people know what's going on and where the hell is Boston, right? Like, where am I? I'm not just like getting dropped off at some random hospital. So there was a ton outside of a, a logistically and medically complex call, right? It wasn't the easiest call I've ever done. Um, these additional layers of how can you care for the patient and the patient's loved ones at a time where you and a handful of other people are really the people that are working very hard to ensure that people very far away from home are aware of what they need, what they can have, and how they can get it. And that was hands down one of the most impactful calls that I've done um, probably throughout my tenure here in any facet of medicine. Wow. Man, that's cool. I love the fact that you're still in touch with them. I, I that's yeah. because that it, we I actually talk about that quite a bit here. Is you very rarely see that, or that very rarely happens. It, it's like a you you get them, you pick them up, you drop them off, you see you later, and that's it. Yeah, and you never yeah. hear anything again. So, man, that's awesome. I love that. Love that. Yeah, man, it was great. And and I have to say, I. As I mentioned earlier, I am traditionally very against keeping in touch with patients. I am like, it's our job, right? We do the thing. If we get some follow-up, like you said, man, like, hey, you healed up okay on the medical side, right? Oh, it was actually a hemonumo or, oh, they did have a brain bleed, like, like whatever, right? Like, that's really helpful clinically. Um, but for me personally, for my sanity, my job starts and ends with when you call and when I dropped you off, right? And that is, I've done my job to the best of my ability and to linger too much in this ether of like, but call me if you need anything, right? Is 
is a there's like some genuine like ethical questions around it and b right. it, it makes calls linger for longer than i believe they should because i i fully believe that everyone's entitled to their own coping mechanisms and that's fine um this person's family was very persistent and i mean that in the most polite and professional way right like they were the ones that continued to reach out a couple times and um, a member of that family is also a member of civil service so it was like hey I understand that I'm still reaching out to you, right? Like I'm still saying <laughs> when we come back to the States, I would very much like to buy you a cup of coffee, right? And in this really sit with this fact that like this family wanted this and it wasn't just like me trying to get closure or anything like that. Um, so I'm, I'm honored to um, stay in touch with that family on occasion and, you know, send a holiday card and see how our patient is doing and growing and living and all of that. It's, it's absolutely for me, the exception, not the rule, but it's fantastic. No, that's great. Uh, and for us, as far as the helicopter rescue specific side, and which I'm going to touch on that in a minute here, but yeah, same thing. Like we go out to, let's say a container ship and I hoist some guy off a container ship who's got, let's say uh, nothing more than a, I got, I say nothing more. He's got appendicitis right, or something, something sure. not crazy bad, but bad enough where he's got to get off the container ship. So we pick him up. We do the meet and greet. What's up, man? I'm Jason. You call me Quinny. I know I'm in the helicopter. Here's a headset. Let's have a conversation. You doing okay? Yeah, let me give you this. Let me give you that. Let me do this. Let me do that. All right, we're at the at the hospital. High five. Peace out. Good to meet you. And then I'm done, right? Yeah. I'm with you. Occasional follow-up. Now, there are occasions where we do get that like real follow-up where you get to really meet somebody or the family later, um, which I've had that as well. And and that resonates with me. As a matter of fact, that's going to be part of our conversation later because I remember one of the people that I, I rescued and I'm, I'm having a conversation with him and his wife is standing there crying, thanking me for doing everything I could to save her husband. And I'm like, holy God, now I'm crying. She's crying. It's like, it's, it's just, yeah. So I get where you're coming from. Call it good. And the other side of it, I get where you're coming from. It's nice to keep in touch. So it's cool. Yeah. Right on. Thanks for sharing that, man. That's good. So, oh, of course, man. My pleasure. So now let me touch on this real quick. Rescue versus, uh, I'm going to use the word standard medical care. It, it, is that okay with you? Is that a yeah, kind of yeah, a? that's fine. Yeah. All right. So it was a message that you and I had back and forth. And one of the things <laughs> you said to me, as a matter of fact, I'm going to read it verbatim. You're like, uh, I understand how you define a rescue. Uh, I was originally thinking that it was search and rescue sense of like the crazy. And, and I added the word, the crazy, but you're right. And that is exactly how I identify it. SAR. When you talk SAR, you think, and most people think I will, I will use the term generally U.S. Coast Guard going out into 20 plus foot seas to save 15 people on a sinking vessel or the National Guard getting called out to be on the mountain that's on fire because there's an entire family stuck on top, or paint the picture, agency, fire department, police department, somebody's going into a big rescue, that search and rescue, the SAR. At the same time, you and I have shown up on probably occasional motor vehicle crash where some dude needs to be extricated or some dude fell off the side of a bridge or something, maybe, you know, and now all of a sudden you have to rescue that person. So if you take the essay out of SAR, okay, now you've got a rescue. And this is what I want to highlight here is what people do to go above and beyond, because it's not, 
it's not just the huge big waves. It's not just a mountain on fire. It is literally, I, I mean, I've talked to people, cops that, that find or end up uh, helping somebody that's going to commit suicide, jump off a cliff and they save them, like grab them from jumping off and then they're getting help. That is a rescue all day long. And that's, yeah, and I love that. So that's why I, I highlight that here. But so I don't, I don't want you to ever take away from what you do to, to save others and everybody out there. Don't take away from what you do to help others in need. That's awesome, man. I appreciate it. You know, I think, um, I, I mean, I'm even lucky within my industry, right? In the Hems critical care industry, uh, colleagues of mine, especially out in like the Pacific Northwest, right? Those guys get launched for a mountaintop somewhere and they're like, I don't know, man, find the flare, right? And I'm up here in Boston being like, is it LZ1 or LZ2? Because if I don't have, you know, a lat long and six firefighters with lighted lanterns pointing towards the center, I'm being facetious. I don't want my pod to get mad at me, but like that's, that's, that's our, that's our modus operandum, right? Like that's how, that's how we operate. So, you know, my colleagues are like, so I landed on half a skid and I got out, you know, and I walked three miles in the woods to get Bob. I'm like, that's our, what I do is admittedly very elaborate and at times very fancy medical care. I think where, where some of us get stuck is like, yeah, but you know, we're not on a mountain, we're not on a roof. So you're absolutely right. The rescue can happen anywhere and good quality patient advocacy can oftentimes look like a rescue, even when you're picking patients up out of a hospital, right? Like even when like a bunch of medical care has already been performed, uh, you as the uh, HEMS and critical care team can very much still rescue a patient on the medical and clinical side of the coin. Totally. Uh, and I love it. And now I'm, I'm going to kind of divert us into what we're really here to talk about. And that is the, uh, the PTSD side of that and the critical incident stress side of that thing that's a big demon in a lot of people and people don't I, you know what i'm gonna say me I, i'm not putting okay. this on anybody else i'm gonna say me all right that way if anybody out there can relate to what i'm saying then they can identify and they can say oh yeah you know what i feel like that too but this is for me right one of the first times that i went through this i didn't know what i was going through like I, and even at a young age, I had gone through a couple things. And I remember being like, God, I just want to talk to somebody that doesn't know me and that just to listen. And, and, and again, fast forward into my, my big, one of my biggest rescues. And actually it was my biggest rescue. And I, I remember standing in the shower crying and not understanding why I'm like, well, I don't understand what's going on right now. I don't get it. But I didn't go back to my shop. I didn't go back to my, my peers and be like, man, something's up. I didn't do that because why? Because I'm a tough guy. That's why. Because I, I know I, I just pushed that down. I didn't talk to my, my wife. I didn't talk to my kids. I didn't, and well, they were too young, but not my parents, nobody. So I know what happened there and, I, and I'm happy to talk about all that now. But let me ask you, is there, a, is there a, a rescue or a medevac that you had called to that resonates with you as to how this sit with you? Only one, <laughs> right? Like how much, <laughs> yeah, how right? much time do we have to talk about it? Yeah, I think <laughs> what I think is important to remember and, and, you know, Jason and I like looked over some show notes and kind of like put us, put a scaffolding together for what we're going to talk about. And I think when, when we go to fire departments, we go to EMS agencies, we go to SAR programs, HEMS programs, what have you. And we say, Hey, what's a bad call? What makes your metric for a bad call? Standard answers are car on fire, super gory, kids, pets, you name it. When I tell you that the American Psychiatric Association, 
right? This like no joke program that like helps identify the American scope of mental health care. When we ask them what makes an event traumatic, they give a really broad list. They talk about experiences where you feel helpless or hopeless. They talk about experiences where you had intense fear or lack of control. They talk about experiences where you had a genuine or perceived fear for your safety. So let's zoom out and talk about Jason's thousandth flight versus my first. He's going to feel some turbulence and be like, this is awesome. I'm going to feel some turbulence and be like, I'm going down, right? Because you just don't know what it is. So oh, you know me well we already. At, this is great. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And the last piece of that list is anything that creates a change in your perspective of the world or your change in worldview. So to get a little more macabre, let's talk about the first time we saw domestic violence, the first time we saw child abuse, right? And the idea that you lived a life, regardless of how short or how long, without understanding that human beings can intentionally harm their children or human beings can intentionally harm and kill one another. And seeing that changes your perception of the world. And that change in worldview on top of these other very understandable aspects are the psychological definition of a traumatic event. So when I go to a place and I say, what's a bad call for you guys? I get that answer. The, the bloody, the gory, the nasty, the this. And I say, okay, well, let's zoom out and let's see what we can add to that list with a very different set of criteria. And you're like, oh man, maybe that is why this call that I didn't think should have bothered me is so stuck with me because I felt hopeless or I felt helpless, right? I knew this human being was going to die, and I was just the guy to throw an IV in and hold their hand until we got to the commissary, right? But with my scope of medical knowledge, I knew that unless there was a scalpel 20 minutes ago, that there was nothing we were going to do for this person. Or it was the first time I saw child abuse. Or the first time I saw a gory injury that didn't like make sense in my brain, right? I worked with an individual years ago who had taken care of someone whose interior compartment had been so intruded upon that the gas pedal foot was rotated 360 degrees. And this person was like, this guy's trying to walk to me and can't, right? Because the biomechanics are all jacked up. And I'd never seen a leg that could do that. Could is using a lot of weight in that sentence. But this idea of like provider to provider, Jason and I are having a beer talking about this. And I come to him and I'm like, I'm really shook over this one isolated lower extremity injury. We're going to be like, shut up, you pussy. You want to know like what real gore looks like? And we really like attack this because it doesn't meet our metric of traumatic. Whereas conversely, yeah. if I said, dude, I'm really shook. Like there was a kid in that car that we couldn't get to, right? Everyone's like, oh man, that's really, really hard. This is not, you get a ton more empathy because it meets everyone else's metric. When if we learn that the actual psychologic metric is a much wider net and changes over time, it's much easier for us to be empathetic towards the individuals that are experiencing trauma and to Jason's point helps you understand why you're crying in the shower and helps you understand, Oh, right. This dude on Jason's podcast gave me this list of like traumatic events. And as I really sit and reflect on this call, maybe I am affected by this. And Jason and I are going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and kind of what's normal versus what can be disordered. But the understanding that that list and that lens is so much broader than we give it credit for allows you the space to say, okay, cool, this is normal. 
because a team of like the psychologists, 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 right? And all of their psychiatry counterparts have agreed that this is a list of traumatic things. And these calls I'm experiencing actually check every single box. So it's understandable and natural and normal for me to experience some semblance of a stress response when I've undergone trauma that fits that list instead of the list at the coffee table at SAR headquarters or the coffee table at your local fire department where it's got to be big, bad, gross, and nasty every single time. Yeah. Nice. I appreciate that. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty good definition as far as what what PTSD is and, and what triggers it. So you have the the event and mm-hmm. then you have the how you're how you're going to you personally are going to respond to it. Again, for me, it was I didn't know how to respond to it at that time. I didn't actually know what was going on. And that was only the first time. The second time it happened was I, I'll give you this one too, which and I don't want to take this podcast and and do the one, the woe is me stuff. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I want to highlight something that's happened to me. So it's, if it's happened to somebody else, they can be like, holy cow. Okay. The other one for me was we got launched out uh, for two uh, people that got sucked out of the surf and a rogue, not a rogue wave, but a, a larger wave had come in, caught both of them and pulled them out. So we get called out and we, we show up on scene and there's one of the ladies, she's about 22, 23 years old. She's in the surf getting rolled around. We got eyes on, they send me down in the water. I stay connected to the hook. I grab her. We get hit by a wave. And the only thing that kept me from losing her was the fact that she was wearing a wristwatch and the wristwatch was digging into our arm so that I could hold her hand as we went through the wave. As soon as the wave was done, I pulled her in close got her in a bear hug. They picked us up out of the water and they put us down on the beach. And I remember her laying down on the beach and looking at her and I knew she was dead. I knew that. Now I'm, I'm not the one that can say she's dead. I, I can't do that. It's not my, my level of, I was an EMT basic at a time. So I don't, I also don't have time to start CPR because there's another little girl that was about six or seven that's still in the water that I have to go search for. So there are two guys that come over. And again, I, I remember this lady's face like it was, she's sitting right in front of me right now. Like I can see it. But there are two guys there. I'm like, you guys start CPR. I got to go back to the water and get in the helicopter. And when I get back out there, there's the little girl that's still out in the surf. We, we don't find her. And we hit bingo. We have to go back to the base. A second helicopter comes out. The second helicopter comes out. They find her. CPR all the way to the hospital. She passes away in the hospital and then they come back and we do a debrief and our debrief is all of like, I'll say 20 minutes between two crews. Nobody in that time had said that I remember that I remember. Let me, let me emphasize that because it it may have come out, but it was at that point in time, I don't remember if anybody said, Hey, does anybody need anybody want to talk about this anymore? And and at that time I didn't, her face was still in my head. I didn't find the little girl. My buddy did. Him and I talked about it for a minute. And I remember leaving the base and driving home and breaking down crying at a at a stop sign because all I could think about was my daughter being stuck in the surf and I couldn't find her. And it was like, oh my gosh. And it was it hit me so hard. Again, didn't say anything, didn't call anybody, didn't do anything. But why am I sitting here crying? I didn't find her. I didn't do CPR on her, but it hit me. So another story from an incident of mine that, that really stood out to me. So. 
Jason, thanks so much for sharing that, man. Um, I think one thing that's really important to say, other than how profoundly challenging a scenario that is, is how much courage and bravery it takes to talk about that on your podcast. Right. And you might edit this out. You might be like, ah, thought about it, cutting it out. <laughs> Probably but, not. <laughs> it it's so important that we as providers share more stories. Right. I do not love doing exactly what Jason did and going and sharing some of my really traumatic calls. I my eyes well up, my heart rate speeds. I bring myself right back to that hospital room or right back to that roadside. Right. And it's not that what I don't right particularly now? enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Heart rate's going up. <laughs> right, right. And I don't particularly enjoy, right, the lump that comes up in my throat and, and all of that. It takes me a second to spool down. But what we do when we share that story is we remind everybody that every single responder, healthcare provider, civil servant, you name it, has a story, has a call. And can we tell them that they have a place where they can offload that in a place that is non-judgmental and can tell them either that's completely normal or that's completely normal and let's see if we can get you some support so this doesn't turn into something that is disordered and really starting to interrupt your day. So I applaud you for sharing that heavy story because I took the I took the low road and told a happy story. So thank you for, for sharing a heavy story, man. I appreciate it. Hey, I know you got a couple of stories that we're going to touch on here shortly. So it's, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. It's all going to come around. So, um, and my pleasure. I mean, I, as a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever shared that story on this podcast. It, that might be the first time. So, uh, anyway, so let me ask you this. We know what PTSD is. We know what critical incident stress management is. What is it not? Love it. Love it. Now batting number 23, James Boomhauer, right? Um, so <laughs> the, the biggest thing you have to understand, biggest thing that everyone has to understand is stress happens to us. This is thing number one. There's an entire book that I have to memorize throughout my training to become a counselor. The DSM manual for mental health providers. That gives me a set of conditions, it gives me diagnostic tools, it gives me stuff to tell insurance, right? It is the treatment manual that all mental health providers lean on, okay? Think physician's desk reference, but for mental health providers, right? When we talk about trauma, trauma is the only form of psychiatric or psychological impairment or dysfunction or however you want to label it as you work your way down this list that doesn't have a genetic or hereditary component to it. A vast majority of mental health diseases are biologic, they're genetic, they're hereditary. We can point to a thing that puts you at a higher predisposition for XYZ. Trauma happens to you. We go back to 9-11. An entire country was mined in its own business when we had a worldview altering event regardless of where you lived. You bring yourself closer to where that event was, helplessness, hopelessness, intense feelings of fear and lack of control, right? These people were just living their lives and doing the thing. And then they suffered an immense trauma. And now they have a traumatic stress response. And I talk about it in that light, because again, very few people argue that that world event 
didn't really bother them, right? For many of us, it's what brought us into the profession. Some of us, it's what brought us into the armed forces to defend our country. It was a mainstay for our profession, right? So when we look at post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress is a number of physiologic and psychologic responses to a traumatic event or to a stressful event. On the SAR side, on the medical side, we all know when our partner's really stressed out because I can't connect the lure lock, right? I'm losing, I'm losing like fine motor control and I can't even put the syringe in the needleless adapter. And we teach you some breathing exercises and we just zoom out a minute. We're like, hey, deep, slow breath, man. We are okay, right? I just need you to do this. We can get through this. All of that is a completely normal and completely understandable response to stress. When we look at post-traumatic stress disorder, we are taking these very normal, very understandable stress responses, and we can't wash them out, right? Weeks and weeks, and in some cases, more than a month has gone by, and we feel that call, and we are as affected by that event the same on day 35 as we were on hour five. That is when we look at these post-traumatic stress symptoms and we consider them by the book disorder because our brain has not been able to process this in any way, shape, or form. Jason brought up crying randomly in the shower, right? I used to do, if anyone is watching this, uh, flight weight is this tightrope that I walk every single day. And I'm just glad that MedFlight got bigger, better helicopters. So I used to do a ton of indoor cycling. It was just a good way to meet people and like burn off a bunch of calories and keep myself flight weight. And at the studio that I went to in Foxborough a number of years ago, three quarters of the way through the class, they'd give you one song to just like be zen, one song to be yourself. You can run at your own speed. You can go fast. You can go slow. And I'd put the little complimentary towel they give you over my head and ball my eyes out and then pretend it was all sweat, clean up my face and then finish the rest of the class. And it was because I had such a profound <laughs> stress response still simmering in me that once I burned a bunch of calories and once I brought my sympathetic nervous system all the way back up again, my body's like, bro, this has to come somewhere. And I hysterically cried, wiped my face off, hoped that everyone thought that tears were sweat and couldn't tell the difference, right? And then just went on. And this continued for months. And it's just one of the many ways to say, hey, if you're hysterically sobbing in your exercise class weeks after the event that you're crying about, it wouldn't hurt to talk to a mental health professional, right? It's a really good idea to get this. And we have an entire cadre of mental health professionals that are specifically trained to help you manage that component. And additionally, we have some like myself with the lived experience to say, yeah, man, I too have had to look at a human that I knew needed more care than I could give them. And because I had other people, I had to try to go save, right? So there's this empathy and this lived experience, which isn't necessary, but can be really helpful. When you can relate to what others are going through, which yeah. I, it makes a difference to me personally. Again, I want to try to make this me. I don't want to talk about others in a way like, oh, I, this is what they say. No, 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 no. This is what I'm telling you. Like I did not want to come to my, my peers because I didn't want to show weakness at the same time 
two of the my mentors in my shop at the time up in Kodiak specifically, they they had me in their office a couple of times. Hey man, tell me how that case went again. Tell me how it went again. Tell me how it went again. Like I, I had to talk about it multiple times. And it was a it was a good thing that I did, but again, it it just took time. So Yeah. Anyway. yeah. And and without without thinking too deep into what uh, your supervisory staff was doing, um, that is one of the psychological components of management of this. Of let's start by seeing where we can get you to retell the story without as much of an emotional response. Huge caveat, that is something a mental health professional does. That is not something I want you and your buddies to try to do with a couple beers. Please, God, don't do that, right? That is a full tilt mental health intervention. But it's one of the useful tools. And again, to go back to my point earlier, if you broke your wrist on that call, A, your buddies would have seen it. And B, if you walked in like this, somebody would have helped you. Right? They wouldn't have been like, you're so weak, you and your lame radius and all nut, right? Like, no, they would have been like, oh, fuck, you must have broke your wrist on that. Let me give you some medicine. Let me splint it. Let's find you a doctor. Let's get it x-rayed, right? Like, let's do all this stuff. A, because it's visible, and B, because no one would say, nice, nice, faking it, right? And a big part of why I advocate so hard to zoom out of what we consider traumatic is when you look at Jason's call under any lens, that's an emotional, challenging, and traumatic call. If I zoom out and say, hey, so I gave you this like five, six point bullet list, um, his covers all of it twice. Like, can we make sure he didn't break his wrist? Can we give him 10 minutes to chill? Can we give him some food, give him some water? And just make it part of the process. No different than making sure that you haven't sustained any physical injuries as you were in and out of the drink, trying to move people back and forth. That's good. That's good. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, let me, let me ask you this then signs and symptoms, right? So you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, just different things. The trauma hits deep diff, people in different ways. So how do we, how would I have picked up on that? I mean, I get it. Like, yeah, crying in the shower, and I can say that now. And then sitting at the stop sign. And again, those are two very different calls. And they are years apart, mind you, years sure. apart. So at what point should I should I have or it, I, I'm not even sure how I want to ask this, but at what point should I have like just sucked it up and said, man, I need help. Like, and I, I think a lot of people in general, this one I'll throw out a lot of people, they yeah. don't do that. And the reason I can say that is because a lot of people have come on this podcast and said, I didn't want to ask for help. I, I didn't okay. go. So how do, how do we help people be able to do that? Yeah. So uh, I can't make an all-encompassing list, right? And A, it'd probably be copyright <laughs> infringement if I did. And B, um, everyone's lived experience is a little bit different. But when this is where we'll start to tie in some of the CASM stuff, right? So a big part of CASM is what we call psychoeducation. I sit with you, we talk about the case, and then I tell you with our best guess what the next 72 hours are going to be like, right? You're going to be emotional. You're going to be exhausted. Nightmares for some are guaranteed. And we're going to say, stay away from the alcohol. Be mindful of your caffeine intake to not further kind of increase the depths of this roller coaster, right? But that really heavy psychogenic and physical response of, I keep hearing you know, the sounds of the waves, or I keep hearing the people around it, right? In my instance, it was, I cannot get this nursery rhyme out of my head. I can't, 
right? And it's been a week, it's been two weeks, it's been three weeks. What we look at are a combination of symptoms and their duration. Additionally, we look at how those symptoms affect you. It's a different story if I say, I can't get that nursery rhyme out of my head. It's just like in loop back here. But when I tell it to stop, it stops. Versus I can't go to work because I'm sitting here listening to that nursery rhyme and I can't get in the car, right? These are two very different levels of dysfunction on top of what is a very normal symptom for the first three, five, maybe even seven days but can get dysfunctional if it continues beyond that. So to answer your question broadly, I want to make sure people know what the signs and symptoms are, and I want to make sure they know that it's normal for the first 72 to 90-ish hours. That is how our brain processes it. It moves it out of the frontal lobe, and it puts it through REM sleep back where it needs to go, and you can find yourself making distance. Right, What Jason and I were retelling in our stories were a painful memory. But someone who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, their brain will be right back there. And most importantly, their body, their physiology will be right back there. Heart rates through the roof. They're starting to breathe faster. They're starting to get really emotional as they're retelling it. That is the sympathetic response. And I mean, sympathetic is in like autonomic nervous system, not emotional sympathy, empathy, that's the sympathetic response to that event. So we care about symptom presentation and we care about duration with a really important caveat that some of these symptoms can hit really hard, really fast. And if at any point you feel like you're going to take your own life or you're going to harm or kill someone else, you immediately escalate to 911, 988, or at a minimum, if you're far away and neither of those resources are available to you or coming to you but far away, you get yourself next to someone else and you take yourself far away from any of the tools that you may use to harm or kill yourself. 100% on board with that. Absolutely. All right. So next question. All right. So now you get to a point and hopefully there are the listeners out there that, that hear this and they're like, man, either AI okay, yeah, I know what they're, I know what they're talking about because I'm going through that right now or I, I've gone through it in the past and I've never actually brought it up. I've never talked to anybody. What are things that we can do to help? So if, if right now, James Boomhauer, you come to me and you say, man, Quinny, I, I've been having a hard time. This is why. What can I do to help? In addition to that, what are the spouses or family members? What can they do to help? Assuming that you, James, come to me and you say, man, I've had a rough time. What can yeah. I do for you? Yeah. Um, let me start with spouses and loved ones because okay. they are the unsung heroes of all of us, right? I need to and shout I- out my fiance for a second, right? I am My wife too. Yes. I work full time and I run my own company, right? Which doesn't leave a ton of time for wedding planning or date night, right? And not only does it not leave a ton of time for wedding planning or date night, but it means she's got to do the laundry. She's got to do a lion's share of the chores because I'm up here on podcasts, which are amazing, or writing term papers or seeing clients, right? On top of working at MedFlight. So I've packed a lot of life into a handful of months and my partner is left holding the bag, really, right? Is really left kind of like 
agreeing to help and trying to do the best they can. So huge shout out to all of our significant others, because I hear also often like, well, I don't do the job. Well, I'm not in the helicopter. Personally, my fiance is, so I get way less empathy in that moment, right? <laughs> but for our partners that aren't, they're like, well, I'm home watching the kids, you know, husband or wife, right? I don't want to genderize this. It doesn't matter. I'm not doing the rescue. I'm not doing this. So I can't help or I can't be upset or I can't get mad, right? Insert name, feeling, and emotion here. You are the thousand foot view. You know your partner better than anyone, right? We always joke that like, you know, our team knows us better than anyone else. Like, yes, for sure. I work with people that know me inside out, upside down and backwards. My partner is also on that list, right? My fiance also knows when I'm a little bit different, when I'm a little bit shorter, when I've just been a little stressed out for a little too long and my fuse went from a yard to a millimeter, right? Our partners know that. And what I want the responders in the room to do is give your partner the permission to tell you that. Because all too often we sit there and we're like, I'm big, I'm tough, I'm rescue, I'm HEMS, I'm critical care, I'm civil service, I'm whatever umbrella term you want to use. I can't need the help. And I certainly can't get it from my partner because I'm also the protector, the provider, the husband, the man, the woman, it doesn't matter, right? We put a ton of extra weight on ourselves and we make our relationships super lopsided because I don't say my partner's a fucking badass because on top of dealing with my adolescent ass, right, she's also doing all this stuff and working and this, I say, it's all my fault. It's totally on me. I'm the one that's in grad school and working full time. It shouldn't be on her. And I increase this separation rather than bring it closer together. So step one is simply letting your partner tell you that they think something is up. And that's not as easy as walking in and being like, hey, babe, do you think I'm like messed up or something? Right. It's <laughs> getting down and saying, listen, I want to make sure that we have the time and the space to talk about this. One of the things I'm going to give Jason and that we'll put up on one of my social media channels once this rolls out is called a relationship action plan. And it's literally nothing more than a real quick checklist for what you need after you experience a bad call. And while the checklist itself really isn't the tool, the tool is sitting down with your partner and going over that checklist because it opens up the door for you both to say, how can I support you when you're in need, whether it's me as the responder or whether it's you as my spouse, and that innately will allow the opportunity to have a dialogue about what you may or may not need. So very long-winded way to say the first thing you need to do with your spouse is give them the permission to come to you and tell you that they think something is going on. On the peer level, it's not that different, really, right? At Boston MedFlight, our peer team checks in with you based on a call metric. So if like the dispatch info checks a box, then the peer team sends you a message that says, hey, do you need the peer team? Yes, I need them right now. Yes, but like, I don't know, at like the end of the day, maybe like wait till my shift is over, I'm building my charts. Or no, I don't need you at all. And I'll reach out to you if I do. Thanks so much for asking. I don't need anything from you. And the purpose behind that is the constant reminder that that communication in our agency is okay. And it's so okay that we've specially trained a handful of individuals to be there for you 24-7. If you have your buddy, if Jason and Bobby are the ones that talk to one another and the peer team is completely separate to that, fantastic. If you don't have a buddy, if it's two in the morning and you don't want to wake up your buddy, good news, we have people that are on call, right? We are not there to be the end-all be-all. We're there to be the safety net. 
We're there to be the people that if you don't have anyone, the people that you get are specialty trained to have this dialogue with you. And what our newer clinicians see and our seasoned clinicians see is we give a fuck, right? It matters enough at our agency that we ask at the end of particularly stressful calls. That sounded like it sucked. Do you need anything? And that alone opens the door for Jason to say, thank you. That did suck a lot. And could we talk for five minutes? What is really important to point out as well, and this kind of merges the idea of symptoms to how do we manage that? Responders are notorious for not needing anything in the moment. We are phenomenally trained to shove it down, do the job. Right. I used to work 24-hour shifts and 36-hour shifts long before I got into HEMS. And what that created was like a three-day buffer between me and the incident. So when the drowning call that I opened our podcast with came out, my colleagues, my fellow peer supporters and my really close friends were like, yep, that was a Monday. I'm going to check with James on Wednesday because he's going to be fine on Monday, fine on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, he's going to be A, down enough to process it. And B, that little pocket that he has in his retroperitoneal space, right, is, is finally going <laughs> to open up because I was a crew chief for a 36-hour shift. It was dangerous for me to experience emotion while I'm responsible for 20 other people in a big county system, right? I had to develop that coping mechanism, and that is fine. But the caveat that you can't just keep adding to that pouch, right? You have to deploy it when you need it and then allow it to come back up. So also understanding that it's just as okay for me to come to you about a call that happened six hours ago, and it is for me to come to you about a call that happened three, four weeks ago. Yeah. And understanding that if you're finally starting to tiptoe into this space and you walk into my office as a mental health professional or my space as a peer and you say, can I talk to you about this call from last year? I'm not like, oh, fuck, PTSD, because it was a year ago, right? That, that's not how that timeline works, right? It's not how that system works. And part of the reason I get so frustrated when people use PTSD as a fucking verb is because it diminishes its sincerity in real time and it confuses people. And if you're afraid of post-traumatic stress disorder and we use it every day, like I get startled when a door slams, that must be my PTSD, is just as erroneous as saying, I really like my colored pencils to look a certain way, I must have obsessive compulsive disorder, <laughs> right? And how just maladaptive it is. Oh, uh, yeah, don't water down the term. That that doesn't help any of us. That's uh, no, cool. no. I'll say for a minute, I was, I was excited because like it got it out, right? We all got to say the word out loud. Nobody died. Nobody caught on fire, right? But I do want to be cognizant that people remember that this is a medical diagnosis given to you by mental health or medical health professionals. And when I say is studied, I mean, between the armed forces and the civilian traumatic network, it is studied. What we use to give you this diagnosis is peer reviewed, validated, and it needs to be done by a mental health professional. And that's not just so I get a copay. That's so you know that when your buddy's like, I don't know, man, maybe that's PTSD. That is a showing of compassion and saying, hey, it's okay. This job's hard. We all go through this. Let's find you a mental health professional that can help not only give you the diagnosis, but what comes with a diagnosis, a treatment plan. And once I have a diagnosis, I can create a treatment plan with you. And I don't say management plan. I don't say how we're going to get through it in five years plan. I say a treatment plan. 
PTSD can be cured. It can be treated for post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't want people to think that this is something they have to live with for their entire life. One of the things that Jason and I talk about towards the end is this idea of post-traumatic growth and how you can go through the suck and come out the other side with increased resilience and a showing of growth over time. We're gonna divert real quick to thank our sponsors, Axness. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. Nice. If you don't mind, Boomer, I, I would love to hear another story of yours. And one of them that stands out in particular that, I, that I've actually heard you talk about was you had a, a young man who was checked into the hospital and you were going to pick him up from one hospital to another hospital. And this, is, um, this story actually resonates with you with exactly what we're talking about. And yeah. if you don't mind sharing a little bit of that and, and, and how it relates to the PTSD and SISM side, that would be awesome. Yeah, totally. And and before I talk about the medicine behind this case, I think the external components are really important. I am in my mid-20s. I'm a brand new off-orientation transport provider at MedFlight. And what that also means to me in my world is my long-term significant other and I are now long distance because they live in one state and I've just moved to another. I don't really know a ton of people. And I'm the new guy. Right. And this is no shade to the department in any way, shape or form. The new guy. Right. Like, I don't know. Maybe call me if you need me, I guess. But like, I don't actually know who you are. Right. The so FNG. Am, oh, God. I'm the FNG <laughs> and I'm, I'm young. I, I'm easily the only person at that agency under the age of 30 and probably by a fair number of years before that. Right. So I'm I'm the baby. I'm the FNG. <clears throat> I'm just off orientation. So I'm still working with tremendously experienced clinicians. My job is to like not lose equipment, right? And you have all this training and you come in and you do the thing. And my team and I go to this um, very, very community hospital for this dude who just had a raging GI bleed and like dead right there. Um, sounds like the hospital didn't necessarily pick up on it as quickly as they could have. I don't even want to say should because I wasn't there. I didn't see the human that walked in the door. I just saw the human that that was in need of resuscitation. Uh, and it was just, it was a very, very gross resuscitation. I absolutely uh, fell off of my game. I went from transport specialist paramedic to tech in a minute, right? I, I went from like plan creator to, I guess I can do CPR until my flight nurse comes in and helps put the train back on the track, right? And and I had worked to try to stabilize some aspects of this resuscitation, but nowhere near what my expectations uh, were pointed out for me as a new provider, right? So I am feeling helpless. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling way out of control. And uh, to this hospital's credit, what they'd done kind of psych psychosocially is they'd um, told this individual's significant other that they called for a medical helicopter because that individual needed to go to another uh, hospital with bigger capabilities. Um, and to chill out in the waiting room. Uh, no one had updated them that the patient was uh, being resuscitated. Nobody had updated them that the patient was cardiac arrest. Um, and I say GI bleed not to kind of blur any HIPAA lines, but so you can imagine what the trauma bay looked like. Um, blood yeah. everywhere, some of it donor, some of it not. Um, and when, to this hospital's credit, they said we should, we should bring in family, right, during this recess. And I'm a huge fan of giving individuals that option. 
because uh, it's tremendously beneficial for family closure. Um, an ounce of heads up as to what was on the other end of the curtain would have been really helpful. And uh, we talk about sights and sounds, the scream that that woman let out when she saw her partner in the state that they were in was hard, was hard. And they parked her uh, right next to me as I'm at the head of the bed doing a whole bunch of medicine with, you know, infused medications and bolus medications and also helping to manage the airway and manage the mechanical ventilator and all of that. And I just hear this individual just begging for her partner to not die and stages of grief in real time. Um, yeah. yeah, we talk about it, right? This case was probably a decade ago on the nose. And some of you with really in tune ears can hear my voice starting to squeak up right as I talk about it. It's awful, awful, awful case. Um, this individual uh, succumbed to their uh, disease and their injuries. And, you know, I, I tell everybody, like the team asked everybody if they were okay, but we didn't know each other, right? Our pilot and our nurse had known each other for years. This was not a marquee call for them. Um, they were like, oh, yeah, the new guy kind of, <laughs> welcome to the show, new guy, right? Like this is, it was not the most like um, empathetic scenario ever. We all asked each other if we were okay, but to Jason's point, I was so terrified to say anything other than like, <clears throat> oh yeah, absolutely. I've been a paramedic for 20 years. Trying to like save face, especially because I felt I felt I fell short on the clinical side of the coin. I certainly can't fall short on the clinical side of the coin and the emotional side of the coin. They're going to fire me. They're going to send me home. Um, I uh, took a really long drive home, called my then girlfriend a handful of times, and it's like two in the morning. I think this is like important to tell in the story. So my poor, my poor partner at the time is not, uh, is not awake. Um, I went home, I drank a whole bottle of whiskey, and I wake up face down in a flight suit that is just covered in blood, GI bleed and donor blood, and you name it. Um, my partner calls back that morning when you know they woke up, right, and said, "Oh my God, are you okay? What do you need?" And instantly, instantly, like the bravado shield came up, right? I was like, oh, yeah, babe, sorry for like crying like a bitch on the phone, right? Like I just, uh, cause, right? Because I, I don't mean to be so vulgar, but that's how we talk to one another. I can't just yeah. say, I'm really sorry that I cried over watching a human lose their significant other in real time, right? I have to say, oh, so girly, such a bitch, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It was a bad call. I'm nervous because my medical director is calling, Right presumably to tell me that I'm fired, right? And the first thing that my employer said was, hey, uh, some of the billing paperwork uh, got messed up in the shuffle. Can you, can you uh, complete some of that billing paperwork again? Which is fine. It's fine. It's part of the job. It's totally fine. But it reinforced this idea to me, of, like, keep that shield up, man. Like you had, you had your time to cry. It was in the car ride home and that was it. And it took a very, very long sit with myself to say, this isn't the first time a call's made you this upset. Um, you have no support here, man. Like, like, look around. You don't have a buddy you can reach out to. You don't have, you know, good friends that you can, like, have a beer with and talk this out. Like, you are alone. And some of that was true, and some of that was kind of made up in my mind. Um, you need some help. And you're going to be a statistic if you don't get some help. So take a deep breath and get some help. And I did. And it sucked and it was scary and it was awful. And my first couple mental health professionals were, as a fellow mental health professional, what I will say is their specialty was not my presentation. I won't say they were awful. I will say that like 
you come in as a hot mess express and this person's specialty is like marriage and family counseling and they weren't necessarily ready for me because I didn't know what I was looking for. I called the 1-800 number that was my EAP. They said, where do you live? I gave them a zip code. They said, you can see Sally at noon. And I came into Sally with 20 years of trauma on my back and she specializes in adolescence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't no clue. There. She and so she when, cannot relate to you at all. No, no. That, that's going to be important a little later. Yeah, you're you're totally right, Jason. She can't relate to me at all, and she doesn't have the skill set or the preparation, which I think is very important to give our mental health professionals grace. The preparation to sit with some of the shit that I'm about to tell her. So when she throws up in our session, and now I'm convinced that I'm so broken, I'm making mental health professionals vomit, right? There's no coming back from that. And as a fledgling mental health professional, to that individual's credit, they wrote me a handwritten letter. They mailed it to my house. They were like, please come back. I'm so sorry. I was physically sick that day. Like, I know you think it was your story. It wasn't. I had the flu, this and that. It was tremendous credit to that person for reaching back out and for trying to recreate the alliance. Um, but I had to go and, and find my own mental health professional, I had to find one that I vibed with. And that was a person that's like, you can't scare me. Like, I feel like you're holding back. Because of course, I'm never telling this story again, because it made a mental health professional vomit. And this woman is like, James, I feel like you think you can scare me. And I think you're wrong, right? Like, I don't think you know my background. I don't think you know what I've done. I want you to tell me the story and let me decide if it's too scary for me to hear. And I told her the whole story and I'm ugly crying and I'm sobbing and I'm hitting myself and I'm mad. And she's like, that brought up a lot in you, didn't it? <laughs> right? Like, just deadpan. Like, James, that's not the scariest thing I've heard this week. Right? And not because it's a, not because it's a game or not because it's a contest, but that was her way of reinforcing, you can let it out here. Like, you are in a place this is my skill set. I work with people that have trauma like you every day. And that's not minimizing your trauma. It's saying, so bring it here, right? It's no different than if somebody goes to Jason and says, hey, can we go over uh, the right way to do that high angle rescue? And you're like, buddy, here, here I am, right? Come get me. This is my jam. Or someone comes to me and says, hey, how do I work the breathing machine? And I'm like, oh man, I'm good with the breathing machine, right? It was their way of saying, this is my specialty. Let's do it together. And let's do it in a place where you know that you can tell me some terrifying, sad, and emotional shit, and I'm not going to flinch. And I'm, I'm going to have your back, and I'm going to help you get through this. And what I needed to hear in the moment was how normal my reactions were and how, yes, they were for a very long time, and technically that is disordered if we read this book, but you haven't ever said this to anyone before, so I think the clock starts today rather than the clock starting six months ago. So let's see if we can get through this. And I've been with that clinician now for almost five years. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And you can throw out the crazy inappropriate jokes that we throw amongst each other and not be offended. Yeah. yeah. I'm just yep. going to throw that out there yeah. too. <laughs> I'll tell you that they we, felt... we throw out some terrible jokes and people are yeah. like, oh, you guys are so insensitive. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Yeah. And, and Jason, I think this is a great time to dovetail over like culturally competent versus culturally informed. If you want to go that awesome. Um, so I'm going to shoot myself professionally in the foot because as I mentioned, I'm becoming a counselor. I'm obtaining my graduate degree. Uh, I will then work towards a doctoral degree. The plan is to run a practice where I see professionals in this space. 
right? And I do so with a 20 plus year acumen in 911 and critical care and flight and like all things medicine, right? Because I want medical providers and civil servants to say, oh, I can talk to this guy and he's not going to flinch, right? And that's phenomenal and fantastic. And if you can find your own unicorn who was a cop for 15 years, who was a firefighter for 20 years, who did the thing, who served in the military, who came back, that's amazing. Those individuals are considered culturally competent. But I want to change that verbiage a little bit and say how the profession is shifting is the term of culturally informed. Because cultural competency can get bad, right? Jason can say, well, James has never had to uh, leap out of a helicopter to pick someone up out of the drink. So he's not my version of culturally competent. When in fact, I probably have all the tools, techniques, and lived experience to be that person for him. But I wasn't ever a sergeant in the New York police force, right? So how on earth could I talk to a uh, you know, member of leadership in the police department? And I, I ask all of you to just be really cognizant with how that pendulum is swinging. You want an individual that can sit with your trauma, that can sit with what you are experiencing. You don't always need an individual who knows the difference between an EMT, a paramedic, a nurse, a doctor. You don't need someone who knows what a fly car is. My own counselor was a responder on the mental health and social work side of the coin at 9-11. She oh, wow. still, to this day, probably doesn't know what a 911 paramedic does versus what I do now as a critical care transport provider. And it doesn't matter because it truly isn't the crux of our complexity. So I want what I want everyone to do is we're hopefully gearing them up to start to find peer support and find mental health professionals is give those mental health professionals a little bit of grace, right? As long as they don't throw up in your first session, you should really give that provider at least three sessions to see if you two jive. Because the other side of the coin is I could work with someone on paper who you think we are super copacetic with and we just don't jive, right? We just don't have a good alliance. We don't have a phenomenal rapport. That doesn't mean that you're too broken. And it also doesn't mean that I or whomever is a bad therapist. It means they're not the therapist for you. And I am very guilty when I was much younger of slandering that therapist and pushing all of my colleagues away from that person instead of saying they weren't good for me, right? They didn't meet what I needed them to do because humans are complicated, humans are weird, and humans come in every different shape and size. And everyone has the right mental health professional for them. So I want to make sure that we don't get so caught up in finding the Jameses, the Dianes, and the Balbonis of the world who come with these like really multi-decade experience in the first response community or the civil service community and then transitioned to mental health. I want you to know they're there. I want you to reach out to them. I want you to see if they have availability, right? Like absolutely find those people, but please don't shun a litany of healthcare providers that are trauma-informed and trauma-focused that might not have the previous experience. Nice. I appreciate that. I, I think it's it's funny because you can almost relate it to dating, where thousand can you absolutely right? can. Yeah. So yeah. Hey, hey, I you know her and I just didn't jive. That's why I married that one over there. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Uh, the mental health professionals in the world don't love it when I make the metaphor to dating, right? Because that gets really weird. But like, but I can do it. Hey, look at me. Lens, yeah, exactly. And you can put it under the same lens, right? I've had terrible first dates where I've been like, you're, you're not mine. You're not mine. You're yeah. lovely, but you're not mine. 
right? Yeah. And I have had times where I'm like, ah, that date wasn't amazing, but I'll see him again. Yeah, for sure. Maybe I was weird. Maybe I was in a weird headspace, which is why I say with some very rare exceptions excluded, you have to remember that there's a whole other human on the side of the coin that's trying to figure you out and help you simultaneously. And right. as a clinical intern, I can't properly express the stress load that we have sometimes as we come in and sit down. And while that's not your problem in any way, shape, or form, I ask for an ounce of grace. You're like, man, I don't know. I mean, it seemed good, but it was a little weird. And he asked me three times what my name was. What the fuck? Are you even listening to me? Like, <laughs> can you give that one more session? Right? And after three sessions, man, if, if the vibe isn't there, if you guys don't jive, by all means, you are also allowed to ask your therapist to help you find another therapist. It may seem super faux pas. You can't do that in the dating world, right? You can't be like, um, yeah. this isn't working. Do you have three friends that I could call? <laughs> right? In the mental health world, it's absolutely our job. And the flip side is true. I can say, Jason, I've loved working with you, man. I don't think I have the specialty that you need. And I'm going to give you the name of three people that I trust that do. And it's not because you're too broken. It's not because I can't fix you. It's because I think these people are perfect for what you need. It's no different than seeing an ER doc and them going, I think you need cardiology. I actually think it's a different specialty than I have. And I am going to point you towards three cardiologists to get you to that specialty. So that can happen on both ends of the coin and therapists can feel just as uncomfortable about it as clients can. But know that you're allowed to ask your therapist if they know of other therapists. Our job is not to make sure that we're the only ones that fix you. Our job is to provide you a space where you can come in, be yourself, share your story. And if you don't feel like what we call the therapeutic alliance, right, the connection between yeah. client and counselor is strong, we all have a Rolodex full of people. I, I've gotten a couple clients from exactly that reason. This clinician's like, hey, I have a client that I think is perfect for you. Do you have openings? Can I send them your way? Because I think your specialty is what they need and vice versa, especially as an intern. If someone walks in and their presenting problem is the furthest thing from my specialty, I can start to provide the foundational, think almost mental health first aid. But then my ethical obligation to that person is to point them to the individual that specializes in their presenting problem. So also don't be afraid to have that dialogue because it is very much our responsibility as your counselor to either create the environment that you need or help you find the environment you need if we can't provide it. And while I can't speak for every counselor in the world, a vast majority of us are not abandoning you in that moment. We're not going to be like, hey, here's three numbers. Good luck. We're going to say, all right, guys, we'll meet next week. Right? I'm not going anywhere until you have the right handoff to a professional that you think will best fit you. Man, that is awesome. I, I like the idea. <clears throat> excuse me. I like the idea of having that as an option. And, and like, I didn't even know that I could do that. So thank you for sharing that for me. Like that it's a bonus. Cause I, I mean, I have seen therapists before I, I have been in there and, some I've jived and some I haven't, and that's okay. It, um, it, yeah. yeah, I didn't it, know it I could ask him like, "Can I, you know, I'm not really digging on you. Can, can I get? Can yeah. I go over there?" Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, the other thing it does. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Jason. Nope. 
Um, the other thing it does is it, it forces a conversation with you and your therapist, because what your therapist can say is, what am I not giving you? Right. Because really what you're saying is this isn't working. So if that therapist says, oh, I'm really surprised to hear that. Um, what is it that you're looking for? You can also just tweak the therapeutic relationship that you have. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about this thing. We haven't done that. We haven't done this. And I can either explain why that is or I can say, thank you so much for sharing all of that with me. I didn't realize that that's how what I was doing was coming off as. So let's fix it. I, I obviously cannot get too deep in client interactions, but I had a client that sent me an email that said, hey, I'm all set. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm out of here. And in the mental health world, what we do is what we call a termination session. Well, can we meet one more time to just clarify what you're looking for? Can I help you find that other person? What do you need? And this client essentially said, uh, you're being way too nice to me and you're just beating around the bush and like, I need someone more firm. And it was the green light for me to say, oh, cool. So we can talk about this trauma that you're right. I had really been tiptoeing around because I didn't know if it was an okay topic to enter. And this was that individual's way of saying, we need to go there. And if you can't go there with me, find someone yeah. else. So that also that shout out of, I could use some help. Finding someone else is also a good way to say, can you give me what I'm looking for? Because I'm not getting what I think I need. So by all means, man, ask the question. Always, always, always ask the question. James, I, I'm loving this, man. I, one of the things that, I mean, I've got so many more questions that, that I want to get answered. And I, I don't want to drag this on forever. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. But there's so much more information out there that, that we need to get across to those of us that are doing the job. So the question right now is going to be, why don't we as rescuers feel like we need to talk about this as often as we do? That toxic masculinity and that suck it up mentality, the I'm so afraid to lose everything I've worked so hard for, or even the I don't want to inconvenience James because I'm feeling bad and now you have to cover my duty or you have to cover my shift because, you know, I just can't handle it. You know, it so... I don't even know what I probably asked too much there, but no, no it's perfect. Okay. Hit go. You, if you so, got the question, let's run with it. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I, I actually think as, as a, as a profession, I think we're starting to see the shift in toxic masculinity to strong masculinity, right? I think we're seeing more and more men specifically, right? It's in the word ladies. I'm sorry, but like we're seeing more men specifically understand the importance of physical fitness, nutrition, exercise, yoga, right? Like how it doesn't matter if I can deadlift 340 if I can't touch my toes, right? Like, so I have to have like some <laughs> component of mobility and flexibility Mobility. Right, right. And yoga plays a huge role in kind of all encompassing that, right? It's flexibility, it's mobility, it's great for your mental health, right? So we're watching men kind of make this turn. When we talk about the suck it up mentality, I get it because we were taught it. Every single one of us was taught, not dead, don't quit, right? The second you admit defeat, especially in some of our aspects of civil service, you could die, right? You get bum rushed by an assailant, you fall down and you're like, this is it, right? Then no, you have to get up, you have to fight. Our military personnel, keep shooting, keep moving forward, you have to. We are ingrained in this. What we forget to do is say for that finite period of time, not for our fucking career, right? Yeah. I yeah. too have have to suck it up, 
right? I hurt, I'm tired, I'm sore, but we're in the helicopter with a sick human. I can't say, guys, I really just need like five minutes during this code to just breathe. No, suck it up, deep breath, do your job. You have a break coming up, right? And the recognition of what I like to call the first responder dimmer switch of it's not, I am a responder or I'm not a responder. It's not a light switch. It's a dimmer switch. It's I'm either 12 on 10 responder because I'm getting ready to intubate a baby in some special care nursery somewhere, or I'm one on 10 responder where I've seen this car drive by my house that isn't part of my cul-de-sac three times. And now I'm watching right now. I'm paying attention. So now I'm two, now I'm three, now I'm four, or my personal favorite, you're having beers with your buddies and somebody at the other table starts choking. And everybody kind of glances over and then a couple people really look, right? And what they're doing is like two, three, four. Is he going to cough it out? Am I going to have to do the Heimlich? So this recognition first of toxic masculinity becomes harmful when we put our assumption of what we need to be ahead of what we need. And a big part of doing that is simply turning off or turning down responder mode when we're not in a flight suit in a helicopter on the way to a mission, because it has to be peak when we're on a mission, right? Because then I'm dangerous in the other direction, right? If I'm in a helicopter and flip-flops because I showed up half an hour late and I'm just kind of vibing, I'm not doing the thing. I'm just as a detriment to my team and to myself if I'm not prepared. So the recognition of you absolutely need to suck it up and do the job some times and allow yourself the space to spool down and rest reflect. So I'm actually giving credence to the suck it up mentality with the acknowledgement that all that needs to change is the time frame of when you do need to suck it up and do the job. That change alone can allow you the space to not only heal, but become a better responder, right? It's hard to be a responder when we're sobbing in the shower. We're crying at every exercise class, right? It's hard. We're not fully in the game. So I'm actually being a better responder by turning this down, allowing myself the opportunity to rest and get help and going from there. Matt, I love that. I want to touch on one more thing with that. And that is the, the idea of, you know, you put in all this hard work, you want to stand duty, you want to be on call, you want to be that guy. And at the same time, you don't want to screw your buddy that's off. And, and I know I mentioned that, but it's one of those things where I want I want everybody to know that if you're hurting and you're on duty and you need me to come in, I'm coming in to help you. Like I'm on your team. That's that's what I'm here to do. That's that peer to peer part of it. But what's your what's your stance on that? Yeah. I mean, my first question is exactly what you said. Would you do it for someone else? Well, of course. Okay. So why the way that I like to reframe this is why aren't you allowing me the opportunity to help you like you'd help me? And if you recognize that we're a fraternity, that we're a family, that we're a brotherhood, a sisterhood, and the goal is what? The goal is everyone comes home. I don't care what facet of civil service you're in. That's the goal. We all get here with as many fingers and toes as we came with. We all go home and we kiss our loved ones at the end of the night. And if that means I have to pick up an overtime shift so you can take a day off, fine. And again, I, I keep just pointing to the, the physical aspects, the thing we can see. If you had the flu, nobody wants you in. Get the hell out of base. Yeah. You're puking and shit. You're saying, get out of here, right? I don't want you in here. You have a broken wrist. You're no good to me today, man. You can't hoist your broken wrist. So yeah. 
Well, I understand that we have put a ton of stigma and a ton of barriers between our brain and our body. It truly is no different. It can be just as simple as I need a day to find somebody or the only available day that this therapist I really think I'm going to jive with is today. I'm going to take a sick day. I'm going to take the day. I'm going to rest. I'm going to provide some self-care, right? I think because we're also wired to be all things to all people, we have really stretched out the line between caring for myself and taking advantage of other people, right? And we all know those partners. Let's not pretend those partners don't exist. They are masters of schedule manipulation. They're always sick right before a mission. They don't really want to do. Those people exist, and I don't mean to pretend they don't, but- The line between if I don't take off Friday, I'm going to have a mental breakdown. (laughs) Like I'm I'm too busy. I'm too stressed. I have to take a day. The line between that and now I'm really starting to be a drag on my team and I'm hurting everybody in this and that is a chasm compared to what we actually think it is. So give your team the opportunity to provide the same respect and care for you that you know you would provide for them in a heartbeat if the roles were Man, that is awesome. I, I appreciate you touching on that even even deeper than I just did. That's that's great. And it's going to bring me to my next question, which is going to be like how we prevent burnout. Like you hear a lot of that from uh, individuals throughout the industry. And I, I'm going to use fire, EMS, um, police, military. You hit burnout because you you have to, you get put in so many situations and you never have the opportunity to let it out. So how do we do that with everything? Or actually, I don't even know if I have to say, how do we do that? Because we know how to do that. It's with the peer-to-peer. It's getting help. It's making the call. Absolutely. I'll just let you freaking pound it down even further. Let's go. The the only piece I want to add to that is burnout isn't terminal, right? We suffer burnout and we're like, this is it. Wrap it up. I'm all done. Burnout is a set of signs and symptoms that are just forcing the rest and recovery you should have taken in smaller doses throughout, right? I said it to my partner the other day. I said, oh man, I'm starting to burn out because I I found three more ends to burn my metaphorical candle at, right? And what a hypocrite am I? I'm over here on podcast talking about self-care and my team is like, okay, I was going to take a day off in three weeks, right? And I haven't for a month (laughs) because I knew that I was going to have a particularly challenging month. And that is where resilience comes into play and understanding that for a finite period of time, I got to dig real deep. I got a vacation coming up. I got some time off. I got all this stuff that I'm ready for. Because I want you to think about this like a bank account, right? I want you to think about self-care and rest and nutrition and exercise as putting cash into a metaphorical checking account. And then work is just a bunch of withdrawals, right? And you just keep pulling it and pulling it and pulling it. If you've got nothing in your checking account, you're going to go in the negative real quick. If you continue to put little bits in that checking account, you can handle those withdrawals. This is the mix of where burnout and resilience meet. And again, just remembering that burnout isn't terminal. If you do burnout, what that means is you just missed some signs earlier that you needed to rest and recover sooner. And if you're willing to recover and get back in the mix, you can. Now you know, hey, I missed a wet floor sign like three miles ago, and I probably wouldn't have slipped and fell if I saw it. So if I recognize those pieces sooner, I can be resilient for longer. But it's not terminal. And like Jason said, I can, I can spend time talking about it, rest, recover, hydrate, nutrition, exercise. We all know the tenants that we need. 
I think the only thing that responders do, and I have a, a separate talk where I talk exclusively about this, is we tend to think that it's for other people. It's for the nine to fivers. Of course, I'd go to the Y and be part of the basketball league, but I work a rotating schedule. I can't ever make it Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Okay, but does that mean you can't ever exercise in the history of forever? Probably not, right? So <laughs> we, we need to look at resilience with the same tenacity that we look at a lot of the other problems that we face. And I, I always find it amazing that the same clinicians that can make a mechanical ventilator work using bubblegum and duct tape, right? And the same people that can fast rope out of helicopters, grab somebody out of the drink and bring them back to land are the same people that are like, but I, I don't have the time to be resilient. Fucking figure it out. It's your job. You are specialists <laughs> at doing this. So don't tell me that you can't find the time to work out for 20 minutes because you absolutely yeah. can. And that recognition that you have that skill set, you just have to use it. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> I don't have time. I don't have time. What, what do you mean you don't have time? <laughs> you, you just made... What what you just did right. something that couldn't have been done and you made that work. Right. Well, I, I've heard exactly. this one too. Like in my career was like, oh, there's never enough time to do it the first time, but there's always enough time to do it the second time. Yeah, exactly. I love so that. I love little, that. Exactly. Take right. a little more time on the first time, and you won't have to do it a second time. Just saying. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. Oh, it's great. Um, one of the things that we we should probably talk about because there are a lot of people in, especially to listen to this podcast, that are in aviation, and one of the things that the FAA is is working on, but you don't have to do it right now. You do not need to self report, uh, like peer to peer support. It's not it's not part of the FAA self reporting, is what I should say. So we have an incident. I don't have to self report that to the. And I say an incident like a bad rescue, a bad call, a bad uh, medical, somebody dies in the helicopter. It's, it's not, I don't have to report that to the FAA. They even go a step further with that. Definitely the fire department, the police department and the military. I know they don't have to. So they might have to do it at their base, but that's about it. So what do you know? Yeah. yeah you know, I, I think on the aviation side of the coin, and again, for, for those like HEMS and critical care, like medical crew, aviators are separate, right? Like we're not talking about medical right now, but we know that we have pilots that are like, well, I'd love to like reach out to the peer support team. I'd love to like talk to somebody, try to get some report, but the FAA is going to take my license away, right? Because there's so many rules and regs about obtaining mental health care within the FAA. And all I can tell you right now is that a lot of those rules are starting to change. But what I can tell you is that if you are going to a peer supporter or you're going to part of like a critical incident stress management tool or critical incident stress debriefing, that does not check the box. So if you're like, hey, Boomer, can we talk for 10 minutes? Because this call sucked. And I just like want to talk to you about it. You have not seen proper mental health care. And, and this isn't the right form to kind of get in the weeds of what is that, what isn't that. But I just want you to know that if you have a peer team, if you have a CASM team, or you just want to like talk to somebody about a bad call. The FAA does not view those facets of what we call psychological first aid as a mandatory reported thing. So I'm, I'm working really hard with, with some peer support teams in my region, especially on the HEM side of the coin, to say, like, come to us. Like we, we A, our conversations are confidential, right? And B, we are not checking the box. Now, it's different if... I'm, I'm a very confusing middle ground, right? Because I run a peer support team and I am also becoming a mental health professional. It's different when you say, I am seeing you as a client, 
right? I want to see you, seek you for mental health care. That is different than saying, can we talk about this call for five minutes as peer to peer? So know if you're on the aviation side of the coin, you can reach out to peer support teams if you're in need of assistance. Nice. I like that a lot. Uh, It's good to know too, because again, that whole, there are certain things you have to respond and you have to, it's mandated to um, let the FAA know, especially civilian side of things, but the military and um, your public service, it's it's just different for them. So what I would recommend to caveat on the backside of that is let your command know, let your officers know, let your chiefs know, let, let those people know that something's going on. So I got your back, James, for that one, for sure. So love that. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. One of the things that we have mentioned, we've actually touched on it just barely, but I, I want to kind of dive into it a little bit more. CISM, CISM. Like, what yes. is it exactly? That critical incident stress management, that management tool is put in place. You have CISM teams that come in and help. They'll sit down and talk to you, blah, blah, blah. But let's dive a little further into that one, if, if you don't mind. You got time? No, I got time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about it. it. So when when everyone says CISM, critical incident stress management, everyone shudders and thinks about the time that two or three members of a CISM team made everyone sit in a circle and share some really traumatic experiences, and maybe it wasn't done really well, and I felt it was it was rushed and done poorly. That is called a CISD, a Critical Incident Stress Debriefing. That is one very specific tool that has changed a lot over the past couple of years. That's the medical equivalent of saying, I don't like how codes were run in the 90s, so I'm not going to do CPR on a dead person, right? These are very, very different tools that have changed a lot. Critical incident stress management is an umbrella for everything from self-care, to psychological first aid, to talking to a peer support team. That is all components of critical incident stress management. So your terminology here matters a lot. Critical incident stress management teams can perform critical incident stress debriefings, but it's one tool in a toolbox and I don't want people to run from the idea of critical incident stress management because they're afraid of one event that happened years ago. It's also really important to point out that for a vast majority of us, the training that we undergo to be on a SISM team is internationally recognized and really complicated. It's anywhere from like three to six days, full days of training, depending on the credentials that you're getting to be part of these teams and to take part in these tools and techniques. It is not a 20-minute online course. It is not a, hey, you watch this module and now you're a peer supporter. It is a very complex, very in-depth set of tools that these people acquire. So I I understand that CASDs have taken a bad rap and I believe me have been part of CASDs as the crew member that have been run poorly. And I completely empathize with that experience. I just want you to know that A, CASDs are evolving and becoming a much safer tool to utilize than perhaps in the past. B, we're giving much more scrutiny to who can properly administer, for lack of a better term, or run a critical incident stress debriefing. And critical incident stress management is the umbrella term for all of the tools. So if you are instinctively running away when you see a SISM team member show up, it is not a guarantee that they're going to perform a CASD. There is a litany of tools and interventions they can do to help you that aren't that one piece of the puzzle. 
Man, that's that is great information. I'm I'm glad you you really dialed that in because again, it, it, you're right on point. Where I've been in it as well. You come back from a weird call, and all of a sudden you're sitting entire in front of an entire group. The other one that that's interesting about that is a lot of times, and I've seen it firsthand where people are like, "Nah, I got nothing to say. Move yeah. on," because they don't yeah. want to talk in in front of the. The crew, they, that's, we, that goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, man. I don't need your help. I, I could suck this up. I'm fine. Yeah. Right up until you go home and kick the dog for no damn reason. What's wrong with you? Right. right. And, and <laughs> don't the, kick the dog. The, the dog deserves better than that. The, the civil instructor in me will tell you that that's fine. It, especially when we talk about events where you perhaps were mandated to be there. Most CASDs have some mandatory component to them. The crew chief said, we're all sitting down, we're doing this, we're doing that. If you don't want to talk, I just need your presence because I need the youngest guy to see that Jason is there. If Jason is talking, fantastic, that's huge. If you're uncomfortable talking, that's fine. What I've seen in a number of these that I've done is the first go around is, yeah, I don't got anything to say, move on. And then someone's like, you know, I felt really hopeless because like I couldn't get this person or I couldn't do this thing. And that person's like, you shouldn't have felt hopeless. There was nothing you could have done. Right. And like how validating that one sentence is to that other person. Right. Cause it's the 20, 30 year guy that's saying something. So again, we don't do CASDs a lot. And I hate that the term is debriefing because in our professions, we debrief everything. And it right. is so hard for me as the mental health professional to be like, this isn't a critical incident stress debriefing, right? People are merging operational and emotional and just doing all this shit. So just be very deliberate about the terminology you're using. And to my peer team colleagues and my SISM colleagues that are listening to this, you're in charge of the terminology. So if Jason calls me and he wants my help and he wants me to do this thing, he's like, all right, guys, Boomer's here. He's going to do some kind of debriefing. You're allowed to be like, we are not. What we are doing is called X, Y, and Z. It is not a critical incident stress debriefing, right? Like you're allowed to correct that terminology because those of us outside of the mental health space don't know. They don't know what it is. So we're allowed to share that terminology and to clarify that. And you are allowed to ask those questions to us. Nice. I like that. Well, thanks for clarifying that one, man. That's good. Of course, man. I appreciate Happy it. to. I, I'm, I'm going to go on. I mean, Boomer, I've had you here for a long time. And I appreciate all of this. I really do. I'm not totally done with you yet, though. So <laughs> there, there are a couple of things that I, I want to point out, and that is the resources that are out there. And there are yeah. a lot. And I I don't just say there's a lot, like, just because I can say, oh, there's a lot. No, no, no. There's, there's actually a lot of resources out there that people can call, websites. Uh, I, I mean, foundations that are set up. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yep. Like you, you actually said it earlier, like right in the beginning, you dial 911. They're going to help. 988. And then the I think it's the one after that off the top of my head. Yeah. Is that yep. for, yeah. for veterans, 988 and then one gets you to the veteran side of that. Or, oh, there you go. Uh, okay. Yep. Or, and, and healthcare providers are welcome to do that as well. That's just uniquely the veterans crisis line. Um, I, I am a member of 988. Um, I obviously don't log a whole bunch of hours on the platform now with school and everything else, but um, it's imperative for you to know that even if you aren't on the veteran side of the coin, uh, A, the individuals that are trained to talk to you can talk to anyone, and B, you may be talking to somebody with some cultural competence. There's kind of this you know, confusion that it's just like, oh, Jane Q 
you know, crisis counselor. And I obviously can't guarantee who you're going to get on the other end of the phone or text because you can also text that resource as well. Um, you can text them. You can communicate with them on WhatsApp. You can communicate with them on Facebook Messenger. Uh, the texting platform was the platform that I personally was involved in. I never did the hotline, only the text message side of the coin. Um, but there are a number of platforms you can get there. And hear them out because we can either bring you to the Veterans Crisis Line if you're a member of the armed services and we want to send you to someone with a little more training on that front or just someone to talk to, but they are 24-7, 365. That's awesome. And I'm going to touch on it a little more, but before I do that, I I did a run out of a statistic and I know you have statistics based on the EMS side, but the military side, the 2023 uh, or Veterans Affair 2023 report came out saying that about Every day, there's 17.5, so you got to like do the, the math there, but 17, about 17 people commit suicide every day that's a veteran, and that's not cool. Like that, With all the avenues and everything that we have out there, let's get our, friend, let's get our brothers and sisters some help, right? Yeah. What is it for the EMS side? What are you seeing? Oh. So in, in civil service, uh, we have some more uh, we have some more expansive data on the law enforcement side of the coin. Um, uh, that is kind of a variable number right now. We're still trying to tease out exactly how many law enforcement officers die by suicide. Um, on the fire and EMS side of the coin, we lose about one first responder every four days to suicide. Wow. If individuals oh. die by suicide. Um, there was some fascinating research done pre-COVID. Uh, we surveyed about 5,000 responders and found that uh, one in five have contemplated suicide and one of 10 have attempted to die by suicide. Um, and some caveats in that research is it was a mail-in survey. Uh, so I don't know about you, but like if I'm in crisis, uh, I'm probably not going to fill out a quick mail-in survey. Um, so I worry that that number is actually much, much higher. On the nursing side of the coin, we don't have exact numbers, but we know that our male nurses die by suicide at a rate three times greater than their female counterparts. And wow. on the physician side of the coin, uh, one physician dies by suicide every single day. Wow. So the numbers everywhere are stark. And unfortunately, um, we're racing our veterans. I'm not sure why we're trying to catch up to our veteran colleagues, but we're watching the numbers in civil service get higher rather than lower. I think some of this is because we are more willing to report it than we were previously, right? I think everybody here knows an individual that died by suicide whose family said, nope, accidental overdose, this, that, the other thing, right? And I'm not here to throw any stones or shade at those individuals, but I think some of this is relative to the fact that we are more, I hesitate to use the word comfortable. We're more open in expressing what the cause of death was so that those numbers are going to climb. But it's imperative for you to know that if you are thinking of hurting or killing yourself, there are a litany of resources available to you. The easiest are 911 and 988, followed very closely by just calling someone you care about. I feel unsafe. Can you come over? And just having that person with you, creating some space between you and the means that you may use to attempt to die by suicide, and then let that other individual start to reach out to some other resources and allow yourself the space to use those resources. It's just like we said before, if your buddy was in a bad way, you'd pull out every stop to make sure they were okay. So treat yourself with the same love and respect that you would your friends. I love it. I'm going to throw out a couple of resources that are out there right now from my fellow veterans that are out there. You guys get in touch with the VA. Uh, again, that 988. And then just after that, the prop number one brings you to that Veterans Affair. 
um, <clears throat> something that I personally have gone through. It's called Operation Restored Warrior, ORW. It's absolutely incredible. Um, it's more for veterans. However, they do do law enforcement. Uh, they take fire. Um, I imagine they take EMS as well. But if, if, if you need the help, they're there. Make a phone call. Send a text message. They're on Instagram. They're everywhere. Just, just find a way to get in there. And then you personally, James, you have Stay Fit, the number four duty. So Stay Fit for Duty. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, stayfitforduty.org or .com. We'll get you to the same website. Uh, we are growing an ever expanding list of resources, handouts, just all sorts of information that you can see. Uh, some of my talks are up on there. Some of my podcasts are on there as well. Um, in different ways to get in touch with me and some of my team members. Uh, we also are part of a program called the Overwatch Collective. Uh, again, just like Jason said, it's a program that helps. Uh, military, law enforcement, fire, EMS service personnel. Um, one of the things that the Overwatch Collective does is they help finance the therapy given by culturally competent professionals. So they have a network of therapists that I am part of, I say part of as an intern, right, that I'm becoming a part of, um, where they use the funds that they've generated to help cover the self-pay costs of some of these individuals. So if you find the perfect therapist that's culturally competent in your area, like we talked about, and like, ah, they don't take my insurance or their self-pay or their whatever, uh, the Overwatch Collective will help cover a big chunk of that cost for you. Uh, and I'm honored to be on their list of uh, professionals that you can reach out to. Um, and again, I, I think Jason and I can both agree. I know he has a couple more here. This is not in any way, shape or form an all encompassing list. Uh, this right. is just the list of places that we have personal experience with. Uh, if you're listening to Jason's podcast and you're like, Boomer, why didn't you talk about the XYZ Foundation? Uh, by yeah. all means, email me, text me, you know, let me know about it because I, I want to make sure we all know, you know, this isn't like everyone come to James and James makes a million dollars, right? This is such a global problem that we want to make sure we are not building all of these things in silos. Uh, the only other one I have on my list is a program called OpSurf, or Operation Surf. Uh, that is out in California, uh, run by veterans. Uh, my fiance was part of it for a number of years. Um, well, they are not primarily mental health focused, a huge part of their outings, of their surf trainings, of their ways to help disabled veterans um, and disabled individuals work and get on a surfboard and do the thing. A huge component of that revolves around mental health and they do absolutely fantastic work as well. Nice. You know what? I'll throw another one out there too. It's called the Step Up Foundation. And uh, that, and I, I know this one very well because CrossFit actually dove into it and the workout Chad, it's a thousand step ups on a 20 inch box with 45 pound pack, Ugh! but it's cool. they yeah, the, the step up foundation uh, is a big component for helping veterans with um, suicide and, and trying to, trying to prevent it. So again, I can't emphasize it enough. There are so many platforms out there for people to call. And I mean, hell I email me. I am happy to get you in touch with somebody or even just take a phone call. I'm, I'm good. Call me. So I can't speak for James, but I'll speak for me. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Uh, so it, all of that comes true as well. My, my website has all my contact info. Uh, my social media of choice is Instagram. So like, if you're looking to, to get in touch with me, like that's the fastest way to do it. The only caveat that I'm going to make is I'm not, when I'm not operating on TTL, the crisis text line, I am not a crisis line. That does not mean you can't reach out and ask for help. It just means at three o'clock in the morning, if I don't answer, we want to make sure you know the 24 seven resources that you can connect with. Awesome. Awesome. I, I'm going to throw this out there as well, because, you know, we've had an amazing conversation here about, 
PTSD, what the signs and symptoms are, what we as personally can experience. And you dropped the story. I dropped the story. But everybody out there, if you know somebody or you're like, man, this, I, I think this might help somebody else. Please share this podcast. Please share this episode with everybody out there. This isn't, we're not doing this to promote one thing or another or an agency or another. We're doing this because we want to see people like live better. We understand what people are going through. We get it. We've lived it. We've done it. We get it. And we want people to understand there is help. And you, and we've lived it and we know. Yeah, that's it. I'm, uh, I'm trying to grow my social media. And when I make a reel or, you know, have like an informative post or something and I see that people share it, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like that's one person who sent it to 10 people and said, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean. This, it's not about the follows. It's not about the likes. It's not about like, oh, right. maybe they'll call and I'll speak at their thing. It's like, Hey man, I was thinking about you and like, look at this or just as good. Hey, significant other, best friend, partner, this, this is what I'm feeling right now. I don't know how to put it into words. This guy did, this person did, this girl did, right? There's a whole network of phenomenal people in this space. This is what I'm feeling and how helpful that can be to be like, Hey man, you sent me 22 memes about burnout. You want to grab a coffee? Hey, you want to grab a beer and like talk about it, right? Like we all yeah. know what's a sign, yeah. man. Like, don't be afraid to reach out and just extend that hand. You don't need all of this training, Right. The training I have is to ensure that I'm a competent mental health professional and am capable to run your support platforms. But you don't need this training to pick up your phone and check in on a buddy. You don't need this training to listen to someone for 10 minutes, right? You need to know that this stuff is available to you if you need additional help and support or if you know of someone who does. Exactly. Boomer, this has been awesome. I cannot thank you enough for coming on, taking time. I love what you're doing. I, I love the fact that you had an opportunity to come on. Like I said, I've been trying to do this for quite a while. And the fact that it's here and done now, I'm excited to you and me, man. I really am. Um, where can people find you? Like wherever. Dude, I cannot thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to be on here. Thanks to Bobby for connecting the two of us. Um, as I said, my, my social media of choice is Instagram. Uh, I'm not yet on TikTok and I'm very rarely on Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays. Uh, but my social media is at stay, S-T-A-Y underscore fit, F-I-T, the number four duty. Uh, my website is stayfitforduty.org. Again, that's S-T-A-Y-F-I-T, the number four, D-U-T-Y. Dot org and you can get to all my social media channels that way i can be reached uh at email james at stayfitforduty.org brilliant i love it boomer thank you so much man I, I really really appreciate this and for everybody out there that's listening thank you for sticking through this all the way through if you know anybody out there that needs help or you think there's somebody that needs our help please reach out this is there's a reason that we're doing this talk to guys that have experience or pick up the phone and just call us. Man, we'll yeah, get man. you in touch with the people you need to get in touch with. So, all right. I love that. Jason, I thank you it. so much for your time, man. I, I can't I can't say thank you enough. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the platform. You, me, dude, me. I can't thank you enough. What are you talking about? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. This is what we'll do. This yeah. summer, when I come back to Massachusetts, I'm going to call you. I'm going to call Bobby. We're going to go sit at the lake. We're going to kick back some brews. Okay? I love it. I'm there. I'm there. I'm yep. just saying, I'll dude. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs>
Sounds fantastic. <laughs> I love man. it. I can't wait. Dude, thank you so much. And I will I will be in touch very soon. All right. That right. sounds awesome, man. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, get good rest. I know it's getting late in your neck of the woods. And again, I can't I can't appreciate this. I can't express how much I appreciate this. This was awesome. Well, this was well worth it for me. So I appreciate you too, man. I'll talk All to right, you man. soon. Okay. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere at any time on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproofed handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You guys made it all the way to the end. Nice. All right, look, I want to give one more shout out to James Boomhauer. Boomer, thank you so much for coming on. This is an absolute pleasure for me. Now, I want to leave you guys with this. Me personally, I had a great support system throughout my entire career. And at this point, I know who to call. I know who my friends are that can listen to me. And I know the support system throughout, whether it's my friends, whether it's the places that we've put online to make that phone call to help, it's there. Moreover, in a lot of the episodes that we've had on this podcast, a big piece of advice from everybody is keeping your mind strong. Take care of your mind is the advice that people are given. The outlets that we've given here today, the resources that we've put out there are just scratching the surface. If you are in need of something, if you are going through something and you can't explain what you're feeling or why, please pick up that phone, make that phone call. It's okay. It's okay. What we see and do is incredible and not everybody can understand it. I say it on here all the time. Those in distress are praying for a miracle. They're going to get you. Well, this time it might be you that needs that miracle. It might be you that needs something else. Don't be afraid to make that phone call. We want you standing duty. We want you out there. We want your mind right. Stay fit, stay safe. And I look forward to hearing more stories from you guys out there. Take care.